This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong. In the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses, nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, August 10th, 2012. This is episode number 80. We'd like to say thanks very much to our lovely sponsors today. Flixel, Hover, and Squarespace. We'll tell you more about them as we always do during the show, and I think you'll like hearing about these guys. Pretty cool. Uh, we also want to mention the Bandwidth for August 2012 is sponsored by Audiobooks app. Listen to thousands of classic audiobooks free on your iPhone or iPad. Check them out, audiobooksapp.com, or just search for audiobooks, one word, in the iTunes store. Good morning or good afternoon to you, John Syracuse. How are you doing? Welcome back from your trip. I'm ready to go. Yeah, let's do it. Skipping that whole week. We're going to talk today about Mountain Lion, which, as predicted, is now old news. And why is anyone still talking about Mountain Lion? Well, I'm still talking about it because <laughs> I talked about it a little bit and we didn't, we didn't finish talking about the review. And then I went on vacation and we had a little uh, hiatus there. But I'm back now. And I think there's still more to talk about on this topic. Take the con, Mr. Syracuse. All right. Uh, I think we left off on the iCloud section of, of the review. Yes. And there's a lot, lot to say about This is page 317. I think it's almost exactly halfway through because I'm looking at the scroll thumb. It's like almost exactly halfway through the article. So we did a good job last time. Uh, now the, I, I start the iCloud section by talking about why am I... Why am I talking about iCloud? Is iCloud a feature of Mountain Lion? Not really, because it existed in Lion, right? It was a service that was announced around the same time as Lion, and it's not, it's not like, oh, for the first time in Mountain Lion, you get to use iCloud. No, you've been using it in Lion, too. Uh, but at the time Lion came out, it was so new and so thinly integrated with the operating system that I didn't have much to say about it then, and, and now I figure it's the time to sort of go back and review. So a lot of this stuff in here is not new information as of Mountain Lion, but it's like stuff that we now know uh, better about iCloud. And th- the main thing to understand about iCloud is that, uh, well, two things. First is that it, it's an online service, but an online service is like half the servers that Apple runs and half the software on devices that you own that interacts with it. So it's not piece of software that you can download it's also not just an online service it's both so it's integrated and this type of thing where the product you get when you you know buy a mac or buy an operating system when you get mountain line you're not just getting a piece of software that makes your hardware work you're getting this integrated thing half of which lives somewhere across the internet and that situation is increasing where there are very few, uh, there are fewer and fewer products these days that are purely one or the other. There's always like a two-part system to it. And from the perspective of a product reviewer, I think I talk about this later in the review, it's weird because you know you got these bits that you downloaded from Apple or whatever that you installed, but you're not just reviewing those bits. There's also some other bits someplace that you don't control and that you have no idea when they're changing. And so when you're trying to review something, we talked about this with iMessages a little bit in the last show, uh, you don't know, uh, is this program I've got here buggy or is it just the servers on the other end that are buggy? Are the servers on the other end just overloaded? Are they upgrading them? Are they, how often are they changing the software that runs on the servers? You know, And you have no visibility into that. And many of these applications are at least half someplace else. 
So it becomes very difficult to talk about, oh, I'm reviewing Mountain Line or I'm reviewing this application or this. Like, what are you even reviewing? Because there is just so, zero visibility into what's going on on the other end of that wire. Uh, it's very mysterious. Uh, and the second thing to know about iCloud is it's mostly a marketing term where they've you know, put a name on the thing that used to be MobileMe, that used to be .Mac, that used to be iTools, you know, used to be eWorld, I guess, yeah. uh, on and on. And it's really just an umbrella term, but from a developer's perspective, they're like, what do you mean? Oh, is, is your app, does your application support iCloud? Well, there's like 17 different things that fall under the umbrella of iCloud. Uh, and the, the three I chose to detail in the Mountain Line review are the three that have to do with like saving stuff into iCloud. There are many more APIs like the, the push services API and all sorts of other things that could fall under the umbrella of iCloud if you squint. But from a developer's perspective, Customers will ask, oh, does your app have iCloud support? And you may ask yourself, uh, should I add iCloud support to my application? And what does that mean? Well, presumably you have some kind of data related to your application. And iCloud support usually means making that data appear everywhere. So it's not just stuck on, on my phone or on my iPad or on my Mac. Right. And the three APIs I talked about that do that are the, the, three, the three different ways that Apple gives you to save stuff into iCloud, I guess. Uh, and the first one is key value storage, which is just for little tiny bits of information, like less than a megabyte per application. So that's for things like preferences and state and settings. Uh, uh, small pieces of information that you'd normally like throw in a library folder in some little file or, you know, in the preferences folder back in the classic days. So this is not for your documents. It's not for your movies, your photos. It's just for little pieces of state, high scores for applications, you know, little stuff like that. And this API is necessarily very simple. You talk a bit in your article about the conflict resolution strategy. And yeah, that's and the, something that when, if you've, if you as a developer, and I know we have developers listening to this, and if you're not a developer, just think about how challenging it is in general to do that kind of, that kind of syncing where you have one thing that thinks it's new and something else that thinks it's new and who's right. And they do a pretty good job of it. Well, that, that's the thing about uh, the co conflict resolution is that each one of these APIs has its own idea of right. how conflict should be resolved. Right. Like for what's appropriate for that API. So it's, it's tough from an end user's perspective because there's no way you can explain to them, oh, on iCloud, the world works like this. But because like, you know, you're not, you don't expect users of your applications to know which particular iCloud APIs you're using. Or like, well, when it's doing your preferences, it's using this API that has this conflict resolution uh, you know, strategy. But when it does this one, it does, it's very confusing. Uh, and, and also very complex, even just to reason about as a developer, as a user, uh, you know, or for Apple to even articulate. Uh, and this is not so much a criticism, but I think it is appropriate for these different APIs to have different uh, strategies about conflict resolution that, that are appropriate for the type of data they're dealing with. But it means for developers, they have to be aware of these nuances and design around them. And for customers, it becomes basically impossible to reason about how conflicts are resolved in iCloud. Uh, That's kind of true with MobileMe and stuff too. But in general, like with all these types of things that try to synchronize your data from one place to the other, you just hope to God that it works. Because people can tell when it's working. Like, Either it works the way they expect or in a way that's not completely crazy, but it's maddening when you know it's doing something it's not supposed to. When you delete something and it keeps reappearing. When you see duplicates of something. When all your stuff magically goes away and you're like, what's going on? Because you have no dials and nothing to control and like no visibility into that black box. And that's the point where the user, unfortunately, will be like, let me try to reason about this. How is it working? And if I put this here and that, will this show up as a conflict there? And how will that be resolved? Uh, and so much of it is in the hands of the individual applications here as well, because that's 
the iCloud APIs tend to take a hands-off approach of like, we'll tell you what's going on, but it's up to the application to make a final decision, which is good in that it gives uh, application authors flexibility to do what they think is appropriate, uh, but bad in that when a user is trying to reason about how something is working, they have no idea, like, is this something the application is doing? Are they calling the APIs wrong? Is it a bug? Is, it, is the, Are Apple's iCloud servers buggy? Both. Uh, neither. Is it something else? Uh, so it's, it's very difficult. Uh, so key value storage is for little pieces of information. Document storage is for files. Files and also bundles, because even files aren't simple, you know. You got an RTFD file, but it's really an RT, a .rtfd directory full of other files and stuff like that. Those are considered, considered single entities. And this is what people think about when they think, like, I've created a text file and I want to save it in iCloud. That's their document storage APIs. Uh, and that, that, at least, their document storage stuff looks a lot like the local storage stuff, which I think we'll get into in a little bit because the, we talked about it last show a lot with the you know, auto-saving and stuff and the versioning. That was all introduced in Lion. And it, to the extent that you're able to wrap your head around how that works... Document storage in iCloud works very similarly in terms of conflict resolution and saving multiple versions and, and stuff like that. Uh, and then finally, there's uh, Core Data. Core Data is, is Apple's uh, object persistence API. It's not an object relational mapper, but if you're familiar with those, you can you know, think it's in the same family of stuff where you've got, you've got a bunch of objects in memory in a computer and you want to persist them somehow and you don't want to deal with details. And this is a framework for helping you do that. And if you have a core data application, there is an API that lets you say, okay, you're previously your core data database was kept in a file somewhere on, on the local disk. Now, here's an API to make it synchronized across all computers. And that's really, really difficult because core data is not dealing with individual files for each record. It's like database files or chunks of database files. And if you make one little tweak to a database here and the application is also running on a computer 10 feet away and you make a tweak there at the same time, how does it... It can't just synchronize the files because the database file is basically you know, an opaque binary blob. It's a SQLite database and the SQLite wall file and all sorts of other things. You can't do it at a file level. You have to have some sort of understanding of what's going on and synchronize the diffs and replay them in various places. And that is fiendishly difficult for Apple to do and very difficult for developers of these applications to manage because it's you know, resolving conflicts between bits of preference data or individual files is hard enough. Resolving conflicts between multiple updates to a database, essentially, especially when you're using it like once removed and indirectly using it through an object interface. You're not like running SQL queries with core data. The whole point is you just use your objects and it persists them. Very, very difficult. Uh, I do not envy the people trying to implement either side of this. You ever written the, this kind of thing in Perl yourself? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, it's easy to do. I've done, uh, done many... That, that's... If you do any web programming, half of web programming is like, there's a database, uh, but you don't want to deal with it directly. You want to deal with your nice world. So how do you map from your nice world to the database world? And the web, web developers are very used to the fact that, you know, simultaneous access, is, it's always, there's always simultaneous access. Yeah. You always have to deal with that. It's a little bit easier in the web world because at least if you're lucky, you have one or two or a handful of, of locations for the actual data, you know, plus or minus database replication. But you, you always have people updating things all at the same time. You have to deal with, well, some guys on this web form and they're doing this and other guys on that web form and they're doing that. And uh, they may have started minutes apart, but they submit at, you know, at, at different times. And do you warn the guy that since you loaded this form, someone else has modified it? And how do you resolve that conflict? How do you even present that information? It's a very difficult problem. Uh, and it's not made any easier by 
doing it in a case where you're actually trying to synchronize the database between devices as well. Uh, so the next section of this is, well, I talk about, about the difficulty of implementing all this stuff, and then I talk about like, how, how does iCloud present itself in Mountain Lion, and the answer is like, everywhere it possibly can yeah it's every very... single page every part of the sign up and installation process <laughs> it used to be on the older system and I actually went through a, an install recently and you probably remember this and just regular line there's one screen that comes up i believe after installation after you boot up where it'll automatically open up the little iCloud preference a system preference uh, and if you dismiss that you're you're pretty much left alone but it they're much 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 obviously deeper integration yeah, a lot of people were asking. I was surprised after the review. I should have known that the people who are paranoid about this stuff would have wanted But they want to know, like, do, do I have to do this, you know, black helicopter, Apple spying on me, stealing my DNA through the keycaps uh, thing to use Mountain Lion? Or can I ignore all that stuff and it still works? And the answer is basically, you don't have to do any of this stuff. You yeah. can, you know, skip, ignore, close, just pretend it doesn't even exist. It will still work. It will still install. And by the way, like I know we didn't do follow-up here, but a tiny brief bit of follow-up. Uh, the first show I was talking about, a couple of people were saying that they were getting authenticated against the store to see if they had purchased the version. Of, and Despite the fact that I said there was no DRM or activation, many, many people wrote in with their individual experiences. And the summary is basically uh, everything that you can imagine that should work in a situation with no DRM, for example, installing on a computer with no network connection at all, no wires, no wireless, uh, installing with a different Apple ID that didn't purchase the program, all these sorts of things, they all work. Many, many reports are saying, I installed this with no network connection, it works just fine. I installed this using an Apple ID that never purchased, it worked just fine. Uh, and the people who did get some sort of authentication dialogue, it mostly came uh, involved like a case where you're trying to restore onto a computer and it's basically trying to prevent you just taking an empty computer, doing net, holding down the keystroke for network restore and getting a free copy of Mountain Lion. Uh, but even that is minimal, and I think you can work around it pretty easily. Uh, so I, I left the review as is and saying there's no DRM and no activation. You can quibble about what constitutes DRM or activation. <laughs> of course, the people wrote in and tell me, well, you, of course it's activation. You have to have a Mac to do it. If you just try to install it on, on an Intel PC, you know, it, it yells at you and there's DRM and stopping. Like, that's true. Uh, I guess it's just the implicit assumption is that uh, we've all accepted the fact that to run Mountain Lion, you need an Apple computer. Uh, and and Apple does things to prevent you from not doing that. And I guess that is a form of DRM, but that's not the context I was really talking about. All right, so anyway, on the Apple ID stuff, uh, even though you can skip all this stuff, it's presented to you many times and it's presented to you in a pretty nice way like they don't try to overwhelm you with fill out this giant form with 700 things on it it's kind of like you have an apple id right type your apple id here and your password here don't have an apple id click this thing to get one what the hell is an apple id click this thing and we'll tell you you have an apple id don't remember your password click this so uh, you know and we'll um, if you click the forgot your password thing like just the very minimum you need to just get going because they don't want they don't want you to be looking at the screen and say i don't know what this is i'll just skip it or i, I don't remember what like if you have an Apple ID, don't have one, if you're even minimally willing to, to look at two fields and read two sentences, you should be able to get through this process with an Apple ID. And it's hard for me to think of any person who has an existing Mac that they're upgrading who doesn't already have an Apple ID because we all have them from our iTunes accounts. And I mean, I don't know if people know that's called an Apple ID, but uh, iPhones and stuff like you, I don't uh, iOS. I'm not sure. Can you even if you buy an iPhone 4S, can you get that thing to like work without entering or creating an Apple ID? I don't even know. Yeah. I should have I think, paid attention last time I 
installed that, but I I think think you need one. Maybe the chat room can tell us. Yeah, and the the that direction, like that's the direction that the vast majority of Apple's customers wants, and Apple itself seems to want because we all want the experience of I drop my phone in the ocean, I go get a new phone, I type in my username and password, and my phone is back to the way it was. Like yeah. that's what we all want. That's what we all want. Yeah, and except for the tiny, tiny percentage of people who don't want Apple stealing their whatever. Joe Joe M. Mac uh, says you can skip the Apple ID stuff. Yeah, and, it, and the thing is, like these days, we just talked about the how half of the product you're buying exists on the other side in a the server. These days, if you were to use a Mac and especially an iPhone without entering that information, it, it would be a severely crippled device in terms of like you're not getting functionality like that you you can't buy movies you can't pull movies over that you bought elsewhere and stream them and you can't do the itunes match stuff for your music and have it everywhere and your your data won't be synchronized and your calendars and your reminders and like all all these things that we want to be able to i do something on my phone i go back to my mac that person's contact information is updated there like that experience is is why people like this type of thing and if you're opposed to any kind of server type integration i think you're just going to be left behind by you know the computing landscape like if you if you are opposed to horseless carriages that's i guess that's fine uh but you're going to miss out on a lot it's going to be real difficult to go on a vacation uh, if you don't like to fly or drive and you want to go to vacation in hawaii i guess you could take a boat for a week but it it's anyway you're in for a rough time uh, so now there how, are i will say that i'm i am testing a android an android powered phone Let's just say that. And there is almost nothing you can do besides make a phone call without uh, without installing, uh, giving it access to a, a Google account. There's almost nothing you can do. Yeah, I mean, you, I can't even, Google, you can't even do basic things uh, with, without it. And Google is ahead of Apple here, I think. Yeah. Like, uh, Google has been ahead for a while. We all said when you know when, when iPhone when the iPhone was still like you had to plug it into your Mac when you bought one. It was right. like, oh, that's that's terrible. What about those Android phones where if you have if you have your life on Google and you just buy an Android phone and you sign in with your, your with your Google information, most of your stuff is there. And Apple should do that. And like they are, and they're catching up. Uh, that that's clearly the future of everything because again, it's what the vast majority of people want because it's convenient and it's cool. Uh, and in the case of both Google and Apple, it's free. Uh, you don't pay for iCloud unless you want to store extra stuff or whatever. Um, so the, the way this appears in in the operating system within applications, like in particular document storage, the example I give is like what happens when you launch TextEdit for the first time on Mountain Lion? Uh, it, a lot of Apple's iLife applications and stuff and you know Word before that and many other applications present you with this big window that says, oh, welcome to our application. Do you want to make like in Word like a newsletter or... Uh, a business letter and they have like a template chooser or in keynote they show like a big window that says here are the various things you can do with this and here's some starting points maybe you'd like to try this whereas the traditional mac model is you launch an application back in the old days you launch an application you get nothing the menu bar changes and that's it uh in the mac os 10 era the, the rules were you launch an application and you should show a new empty window at minimum right in the lion era where everything is restored they say just show all the windows that you showed last time but if there are none of those show an empty window well in text edit now what it shows you is not a new text document or an empty window or your previous windows, assuming there aren't any. It shows you what you probably won't recognize at first as an open save dialog box with a little image that says iCloud for text edit. And it shows the little linen window and some text that says you can move your existing documents to iCloud by dragging them here from the finder. And a little link to learn more about iCloud. It's like 
I just wanted to open some text things and write in my faces like, hey, did you know iCloud exists? And here it is. And here's this window. Like, there is a new document button. But if you click that new document button, it's not just going to create a new empty window. It's going to create a new document in iCloud. They totally want you to put your stuff in iCloud. And they, maybe they think you wouldn't do that if left to your own devices. So uh, a text edit as, as a model citizen saying, hey, if you've got a new application and no one has ever, and your user has never used it before and it's document-based, the first thing you should show them is a big empty window with some informational text saying, Here's the iCloud. I mean, you're not going to say this, but here's the iCloud container for the documents for this thing. You want to make a new document? We're going to land it there. Like, it's the default save location. It's the default open location. It's where they want your stuff to happen. Uh, and at the very top of this thing is the little, like, switcher thing. I don't know what you'd call them. But, like, iCloud is selected, and the other one is on my Mac. And if you click on my Mac, it's like, oh, oh, it's an open dialog box. And you see the typical Mac OS 10 open dialog box with the sidebar from the finder and, you know, list view and you can navigate the, the hierarchy and put stuff in your documents folder and stuff like that. Uh, but I don't think people will find that right off. I think as far as they're concerned, I think, oh, TextEdit does everything in iCloud now. Uh, again, the power of the defaults pushing people in that direction. And untitled documents as well. If you just dismiss that window and said, I'm going to make a new document and you don't, haven't saved yet, uh, that untitled document is in iCloud. And so if you were just to quit TextEdit and then go on to another Mac, you know, a day later and open launch TextEdit, that document that you were like, that you half finished and didn't save, it would pop up on that Mac because that Mac can see your iCloud. Anything in iCloud is everywhere. It's the, you know, ubiquity is the word they use in the API for the, the iCloud document storage. That document is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, and if there was a TextEdit equivalent on iOS, you'd see it there as well. Uh, and this open dialog box for iCloud doesn't look like an open dialog box. It looks like springboard, basically, all the way down to the little folders that aren't folders, the little rounded rectangle things that you can, you know, nest things one level deep. And when you, I was going to say tap on it, but when you, when you click on it, it expands out exactly how folders work on the home screen of your iPhone. That's how folders work in the iCloud open save dialogs, right down to your inability to nest them more than one level deep. At least there's no equivalent of newsstand, I guess, one of those things that you can't <laughs> nest into anything right. else because it is itself a folder. Uh, but that, that's what this world looks like. And this gets back to what we said in the last show. You know, uh, user interface consistency in the Apple world means it looks like iOS because that's what everybody knows. And uh, far fewer people know about the Mac. So here is another case where people trained to understand a very simple form of nesting and a very simple form of things that are called folders but actually look nothing like folders. If you get that training on an iOS device and you come to a Mac and you see the screen, maybe it won't be so weird because you'd be like, oh, all right, yeah, it's like that. It's like that yeah, but thing for old the for old time Mac users and Windows users, for that matter, people who are switching, it just seems so simplistic and wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like okay, that's fine on like a, a an iPhone screen and maybe on an iPad screen, but you're telling me I can't nest my stuff more than one level deep. If you're one of those people who's like, I, I have a, a very complex taxonomy that I that I adhere to, or like you know Merlin with his date or arranged folders by date with the special names, like this is not that. This no. is the and it makes it, it actually becomes an inhibiting factor. It becomes something that says, well, I guess I can't use iCloud then. I'd love to use it, but I'm going to stick with Dropbox or whatever service because Dropbox lets you do whatever you want because it's just a file system that we're all familiar with. And it makes people, some people, I think, nervous because they say, great, all the cool things that Mac OS X brought to the Mac, the basically the Unix underpinnings and all these, you know, being able to shell out. All of these things that I remember people used to complain and I used to complain about is that, well, you know, I love I love Mac OS, but 
I sure do wish I could grab a terminal or I sure do wish I could get access to the file system the way I want coming from the Unix side of the house. You could do that. You could do everything. And now we're, are we losing that? Is it going away? I think it makes some people nervous because this direction isn't the one a lot of us want to go. Yeah, but like that's that's the thing that uh, I, I mean, we'll talk about the auto saving stuff and how that came up recently. I got to find the URL for the show notes, but that's the thing that people who are listening to the show we've been told it by Apple explicitly, and we see it in everything they do. But it's hard to get it through our heads. The idea that Apple doesn't want to provide a cooler way to deal with the file system; they want to not deal with the file system. And iOS once again is the model where. There's no open dialog box on iOS. There is, as far as the user of that device is concerned, there is no file system. There's just it's nothing. Like, not make a better way to do it, make it ubiquitous, make it cloud synchronized like Dropbox. Like, oh, Dropbox is awesome. Apple should get them. It's a great, it just works. It synchronizes the folder. No, no folders, no file, nothing. They want you to not see that ever. Uh, and uh, you can understand their motivation for doing it because we all know how people just can't figure that stuff out and just apparently never will. And we all understand how it works and we love it and everything, but I, I fully support Apple's goal of saying people should never have to deal with it. Like that feels like the future to me that not dealing with the file system at all. Like it doesn't exist. It's not, it's not a concept that has to exist. Obviously it exists under the covers and you know, that that's important and is always going to be that way. And obviously there are realms of computing that where that will be important for a very long time. Like, programming where which directory you put things in actually has significant meaning to the building of your program and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, but if you're, just, if you're just making a bunch of pictures or newsletters or sending email and stuff like that, like we're, the Mac has been moving away from it a bit where you don't have to deal with the file system in iTunes and people resist that because they want to deal with it because they're nerds. But, you know, in mail, <laughs> do, you know where, do you know where your mail is stored? Even in Eudora days, do you know where those mail messages are stored? Are they individual files? Are they in a database? You don't care. Like you deal with your mail through the application. And We've been moving in that direction. iOS jumped way ahead and said, nope, no file system doesn't appear anywhere. And yet people can get things done. And uh, on the Mac, they're trying to move in that direction. Now, where, where I have, uh, where we run into problems is not so much in the goal, which I think is noble and good and important, despite the fact that I myself will always want to have direct access and all that stuff. And I believe I will always have access. But for everyone else using the computer, like I would love it if my mother never had to see an open dialogue box in her life, right? I, I would love that. I would love it if she never had to deal with files, never had to drag things around, never had to make folders, like just get that away so it doesn't exist. But we're not there yet. And the road to getting there is filled with, you know, just because I agree with the goal doesn't mean I agree with how they're trying to get there. Uh, but that that's the, the, the trap we fall into is by saying, look at what they've done to try to hide the file system. It's broken. It doesn't work. It's not, it's not nice. Therefore, the goal is invalid. Uh, or, or like uh, being in denial about the goal of saying, oh, that's not really what I want. I disagree with the goal. I do, I do agree with that goal. And I think I'm ahead of a lot of the people who read my reviews. They're like, why aren't you screaming and yelling about this? It's because I agree with what they're trying to do. And just because I don't like how they're doing it doesn't mean I, I think they should turn back and, and try something different. Uh, that's, that's enough vague terms. Let's look at some more specific examples here. So they, they, they were nice enough to provide a list view, which makes the, the single level of hierarchy in the OpenSave dialog box in the iCloud document store even more perverse. But you're like, look, I got the little triangles and I can turn them down. But yeah, there's never going to be more than one level of those, which is very strange. Uh, so the, the real problem I see in their attempt to transition the Mac to an iOS-like world dealing with files is it's the same problem that exists on iOS. Uh, 
iCloud is not a place like iDisk was or like Dropbox is. iCloud doesn't appear in the Finder sidebar. And a lot of people wrote in to say, I really wish iCloud appeared in the Finder sidebar just like iDisk did or just like my Dropbox does. Because it's not a, it, you know, people who know about, people who know that the Finder sidebar exists and know that you can add things to it want to think of iCloud as a folder that exists on the network somewhere or is synchronized in the network. And that's not what iCloud is at all. Right. It's, not, it, it's know, not really a, th- a tangible thing the way that we think of folders. Yeah, or certainly not a single thing. And that's, the, yeah. you know, people want it to be, oh, it's iCloud, iDisk, it's whatever. It's just some other location in the file system. Uh, the reality is that every document gets its own iCloud document, sto- every document, every application gets its own iCloud document storage container. So what you see in text edit, the reason there's nothing in there, and when you put something in there, that's just sort of text edit's bin of stuff in the cloud. And yeah, there's a physical location you could look at in a library, mobile documents, whatever. Like you could find it on the disk, but the point is you're not supposed to know that it exists and Apple could change it at any time and blah, blah, blah. Uh, th- but that's why they can't have a sidebar item because if you were to click the iCloud sidebar item, what would it show? Right. Uh, and, and here's an example. Say you have two text editors that both use iCloud. And you make a file called, you know, list.txt, list.txt, you make it in text edit and you make it in your other text editor. Those files can both exist. But if you had an iCloud sidebar item and you clicked it, would you see two files with exactly the same name? And I mean exactly, same extension, same case, same letters. That, wouldn't that freak you out? And the reason that can exist is because in reality, there is no single iCloud container. It's a series of containers, one for each application. And that's how it works on iOS too, where, you know, it's even more severely constrained where like you can't even put stuff outside your container like you you are trapped in your container uh, and that's worked in iCloud uh, in iCloud and iOS but as we talked about in the last show that's one of the big weaknesses of iOS if it wants to mature as a platform is how do applications collaborate to accomplish a task how do they share data since they're all sort of pinned off into their own worlds uh, I was trying to give examples in in my review of places where this will really confuse a, a Mac user. One example that the example that I originally had I had to remove because it's not actually possible, uh, but I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good example if it were possible is that uh, think of printing a PDF from Safari. Like, you know, you see the page, you, I do this a lot where it's like a receipt or something, you just go to you select the print command and you do save as PDF. You don't actually send it to your printer. It's a nice way to save receipts or whatever. You could also do a web archive and whatever, but you know, Apple's, Apple's printing system can make a PDF from anything. Uh, the thing about Safari is it's not a document-based application, so it doesn't even integrate with iCloud, so this doesn't actually work. Uh, so please don't email me and say, you know, you can't actually do this in Safari. I know, that's why I took it out of the review before publication. I got this one before it went up, thankfully. Uh, but if you could print to PDF and save that PDF uh, into into iCloud, which is a phrase that shouldn't even exist because it doesn't make sense in the way we think it should, later when you launch Preview and you're like, oh, let me look at that PDF of that thing, and you go to... You know, you, you hit Command O and Preview, and you click on the iCloud thing. You said, "Let me find that PDF." You're not going to see that PDF because Preview didn't create it; something else created it. You know, not Safari in this case, but imagine there was some other application that created it and saved it into iCloud. It's in the iCloud container for whatever application you printed that PDF from. It's not in Preview. And Mac users are used to oh, I create a file somewhere else, and Preview is a viewer application. Like maybe I don't know where that file came from. Maybe I created an application or just printed and created that as an artifact or exported to it or whatever, but I saved it into what I think of as iCloud. And then I try to look at it in my viewer application. I, I go to the open dialog box and I look in iCloud. All you're going to see in iCloud are documents created by Preview or documents you dragged into Preview's container. And it's going to confuse you to say, I swear I saved it into iCloud, 
But when I go to preview and click on iCloud, I don't see anything. Or maybe I see no documents because I don't have anything there. And that's very confusing. Oh, iCloud's not working. It's not synchronizing my stuff. I totally saved that into there. Uh, and the reason I want, I wish I could have used the web browser example, even though it doesn't work because, once again, uh, web browsers are not document-based applications and don't use iCloud document storage for their PDF previews. But if they did, what you would then have to remember as a computer nerd guy is, what browser did I take print that PDF from? Because, you know, like I looked at, okay, I look in Safari's iCloud container, which, again, doesn't exist. Don't email me. I'm turning to Marco here. Uh, and I don't see it there. You'd have to remember which application created it to know where to find it which makes sense in iOS because that's what all we've ever done and that's all we're used to. But on the Mac, we're very used to the idea of having a document that is touched by many applications, whether they're viewer applications, editor applications, or... Right, having or the even, choice, having the choice to, to use the app that you would like to use for. Yeah, it's like, it's like data-centric rather than app-centric. And in fact, in the OpenDoc era, which the the extreme... Uh, end of this, Apple was, was working on a system whereby the data was so centric that you would just open the document and then you would uh, sort of enlist the help of other applications to help you work on the document. So you'd have a document and you'd pull in a piece of functionality from here and a piece of functionality from there. iOS is completely reversed. You launch the application, you only see the, the documents created by that application and it's very difficult to to cross those paths. And I mean, are we just thinking about things in terms of being a dinosaur? I mean, is, is our way the old way and clearly not the right way? And here we are, two old guys complaining about something that, that we should just get with the times. Uh, and for the file system stuff, we are dinosaurs and the old ways are crappy. Uh, and the sooner they can go away, the better. But here, here's how they're trying to get rid of the file system. And they're doing it in such a way that denies the ability to not so much that I say it should be document-centric, but you need some way to collaborate on a creation, even if it's just like a project. Like it's, a lot of people will make a folder for their project, and everything related to that project will be in the folder. All the, the text documents, all the images, the little notes or whatever. Like uh, That type of idea of many pieces of data and documents that all are part of an overall project siloing that by the application that created those applications is, is a distinction that doesn't match with the way most people think about it. And it's very awkward. Even if people do think that way, it'd be very awkward because like, oh, do I care that I created this in Illustrator and this in Photoshop when they're, when they're all both TIFF images because I exported them? Uh, I, I can't view them in my viewer application because the viewer can only see its iCloud container. And again, this is, this is only related to iCloud. Obviously, the regular file systems work the way it always did. But if Apple wants us to move to this world where everything is done through iCloud, they need to come up with either need to give up this this idea of uh, per application containers, which it's going to be very difficult to move away from now that they sort of committed to it, or they need to come up with some way to enable the sharing that we're talking about, both on iOS and on the Mac. And so this this is why I think basically people listening to this podcast or tech nerds are not going to use iCloud and are going to stick with Dropbox with the possible exception of cases of like core data applications where it just like it's a shoebox application like your Jimbo and everything is just synchronized. But for, for document-based applications in particular, iCloud is a non-starter for us because that's, we, we don't work that way and we'll be frustrated by being siloed in this way. And so we'll just say, you know what, Dropbox does what I want, I'll keep using that. And it's a shame because I think people, the conclusion people will draw from that is that this idea of hiding the file system is bad. It's not a bad idea. It's just that this way of getting it so we don't have to use the file system is bad. And so we will shun it and hopefully not misattribute our, our uh, you know, refusal to use it uh, to uh, 
argument with the goal of making the file system disappear. It's really in how they've chosen to do it. And I think it's confusing both to advanced users and to novices, just what's going on here. You know, even if it's one of those things that even when you know it, you, you will forget that you know it and like go look for something. Oh, we, oh, that's right. That's not there. Oh, yeah, no, I can't see that there. Oh, I got to go to the other application, bring up that dialog box, drag the, the document out of the open dialog box onto the desktop and use it as a waypoint or get frustrated and just dig into library, mobile documents, com, Apple preview, whatever, and find that like all that will make you not want to use it. So I think Dropbox is very safe. And it, this, is, this is an instance where I can also see why, like we know that Apple bid for Dropbox or supposedly bid for Dropbox and, and Steve Jobs famously said that they had a feature, not a product. But it makes me wonder what Apple would have done with Dropbox because Apple doesn't want what Dropbox has. They don't even want that feature. They want something different. Maybe they would, could have used Dropbox's technology or enhanced the rest of the file system to, to leverage Dropbox technology so that everything else that wasn't part of iCloud could at least be synchronized with Dropbox or something like that. I, it makes me wonder what they would have done with Dropbox or maybe they just would have like liquidated them and sold all the office furniture uh, and just <laughs> eliminated a competitor. Uh, but I'm kind of glad they're independent because I see, I see a big difference in vision between what Dropbox does and what Apple is trying to do and struggling with. Why don't we do our first spot? Good idea. I mean, we're, we're in pretty deep. It's true. Our first sponsor uh, this week is Squarespace. They're everything you need to know to make an amazing website. Now I looked at, I looked at this, uh, this so-called hypercritical site that, that you do, John, your blog. And I know, I noticed it wasn't on Squarespace. I mean, you only have three posts, but you, it's a really good time to switch, uh, John, for you, because they just came out with the Squarespace 6. This is a cool thing. I would like for you to try it. Let me tell you about what it is. It's a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website. It could be a blog, could be a portfolio, could be a resume page, could be a, a, a site for your app, you got an iOS app. doesn't matter. You can even run a podcast and host the files. You can do everything with this thing. No matter how experienced you are with building sites, you can build something amazing. And uh, as Merlin likes to point out, you can do it in like four minutes. It's really, really fast and easy. And of course you can get in there. You can make it more complicated. You can integrate with the services that you like to use. You can tie it into Twitter, tie it into Facebook. All of this stuff is built in. You don't need to code any of it. Now, if you happen to be good at CSS and HTML, yes, you can completely customize your entire website and make it look like your own completely unique thing that no one else has ever seen. Absolutely, yes, you can do that. Easy. Easy. Because Squarespace makes it easy. They've got an amazing page builder. Everything is integrated. You, if you sign up for a year or two years, you get a free domain name. You get 20% off if you sign up for a year, 25% off if you sign up for two years. And you're not sure you like it? Just go and try it out. It's free to try out. If you decide you like it, you don't want to do some kind of long-term commitment. You don't have to do that. But no matter what you do, use the code. The code is Dan sent me eight. Number eight. This is August. Dan sent me eight, and you will you will get ten percent off everything that you do there. Drag and drop. I mean, all the stuff that you're going to want to do is in there, and you can make it look. Here's the coolest thing about it: you can make it look really good on the web, of course. But what about the mobile devices? What about when somebody looks at it with all of their new, all of their new layouts, all of their new templates? They're all uh, what they what they call in the business responsive. 
So if you don't believe me, go right now, go to bigweek.co or go to blog.5by5.tv and make your browser as small as you can. You'll see everything looks really good. That's because it's all of their designs are responsive. So anyway, go check these guys out. You can go to squarespace.com slash 5by5. And when you're there, you can use the code DANSENTME8, 10% off. And that's cumulative, so you could wind up with 35% off. You sign up for two years, and you get a free domain name. So go check them out, Squarespace. Thanks to those guys for making the show possible. You should switch, John. Try I forgot the key feature is that it'll import from whatever your existing hosting. So it's not like you have to leave behind your previous web presence. And like in my case, all five of my posts, it will import from Tumblr, WordPress, yeah. Postgres, Blogger. Yeah, you can, and, and and it's not like it's not like it automatically shuts down. So if you're if you think, well, I want to try this out, I want to see what this is like. Import all your own content, everything. Bring all the old stuff in. See if you like it. See how it is to edit it. You'll like it, but try it out. That's a good point, John. Thanks for for doing it. Mentioning. Yeah. All right, what what's up next here? Uh, Still iCloud, huh? Yeah. So the the, the thing on. In iCloud, I mentioned it's not in the sidebar. There is a way to see your stuff in iCloud. It's basically the only way to see your iCloud stuff in the finder without being naughty and digging into the supposed-to-be-invisible library folder. Uh, if you go to all my files, the crazy collection that shows you, like every, it's like a, a spotlight search for every file in your home directory or whatever, it will show you your stuff in all the iCloud containers. And all my files was always like a view. You weren't freaked out by seeing two files with the exact same name in all my files because it just nece- it's a search result. It necessarily flattens everything. It's not a folder. It's clearly a saved search and it's the big honk and save search. And all my files is the top item, I believe, even by default in the sidebar. And it makes sense for people who have like 10 files in their life. And I bet that's a surprising number of people who like don't use Dropbox, like the people for whom iCloud will actually work. They can click on all my files and see something sane. Right. If I were to click on all, I've never even clicked on it, but if I were to click on it, it would probably show me, you know, 1.7 million files or try to or, or die trying. And so it's not, it's not a particularly useful button to click for people who have like git repositories and, and stuff in their in their home directory uh but for uh people who are not tech nerds all my files is a great enhancement i can believe it came in like lion and it's the way where you it's it's the one out for the people who are like okay i kind of know what the finder is i've been using the finder for a few years now i'm confused by the fact that i can't find my icloud files their choices are spotlight search which will also find them or go to that finder window and click on the things as all my files and then they will manually scroll looking for their file name. You, they will do this. It's, it, it pains you to see. You're like, just type the first few letters. But no, like, at least it's there for them. Uh, and so that, that is your one possibility of having like an iCloud type uh, sidebar. But, but again, it is of no help to you if you have thousands or millions of files. And, you know, uh, it's, it's a very you know, awkward situation they're in with iCloud and the file system because clearly the vast majority of the OS and I would imagine still the majority of uh, long-time Mac users are not on board with the way iCloud works and or even the way iOS works. And they have, they have an existing model of how they're used to working with desktop computers. And those same people are totally fine using iOS because it's just a different mindset. But on the Mac, they're still not ready to go there, especially since... The, the way Apple's implemented the, the iCloud containers is not great. Now, the thing is, those same people, uh, I'm including myself in this, are probably totally on board with, uh, give you, with the iCloud equivalent of Steam Cloud Sync. Steam Cloud Sync. Steam is uh, Valve's uh, online gaming service, and they added Cloud Sync to a lot of their, you know, the new games have it, and a lot of their old games, they backported it. And what, what it basically means is, if you have a Mac and you play a game of Steam and you set up your key bindings and, and you know, your resolution and, and uh, 
all, all your settings and everything. When you go to a different computer and play Steam, those settings are all there. And that's just so nice and it's so awesome. It's like the little information, like my preferences, my key bindings, my, my screen resolution, my video settings. I don't want to have to re-enter those every time I go someplace else. Well, I bet everybody's on board with, you know, I want all my Mac applications to be iCloud enhanced in that way so that my preferences are, are synced everywhere. So they don't have to, when I set up a new Mac, immediately go into the preferences and set it up the way I want it so that my, like, like BBEdit does now and has done for years. I have my BBEdit application support folder in Dropbox and it's synchronized everywhere. So if I'm at work and I add a new uh, text filter or a new key binding or whatever, when I come home, that key binding and text filter are already there. And that is so nice. So again, that's why I think iCloud as an umbrella term is not useful to talk about because you're like, oh, I hate iCloud. I like Dropbox instead. Well, you may hate iCloud document storage, but I bet you're going to love iCloud, the applications that use iCloud key value storage to synchronize their preferences because that is awesome. We all want that, right? Uh, so that's another case where talking about iCloud is kind of uh, difficult to do and you can end up talking past other people if you don't specify what it is you're, you're talking about. Uh, at the end of the iCloud section, I talk about a, a more of these problems that I've been discussing and how how it's going to be difficult for people to deal with this. In, in particular, uh, I, I make reference once again to how much people love the desktop. Uh, the, the, the lone remaining phenomenon that other people who are, who are not crazy spatial finder fanatics like I am can actually identify with because we have all seen people love the desktop. And by love, I mean they use it constantly. They put crap all over it. Like it's their go-to place. And it's my one chance to, to try to explain to people uh, the reasoning behind spatial interfaces by saying the reason people love the desktop is because it's always in the same place physically and they think of it as like the floor of their computer. Like they never are afraid they can't find it because it's like underneath everything and they think of it spatially as this place where you go to find things and people arrange things on there uh, and Macs more than Windows because Windows thinks has like a snap to grid, uh, you know, and ordering automatically defined, but they put stuff on there like in corners and in piles, like the floor of a messy room. And it's a terrible way to do things. We all agree. Uh, but people do it. And that's, that's part of the example. The, the point I'm trying to get across is that people crave some, some mental model of where things are that they're familiar with. And the human mind is uniquely tailored through its entire existence on planet Earth to understand physical spaces. And so if we can uh, create an interface that taps into that, that makes us think of where our stuff is using the skills we already have for just like, you know, finding things in real life and, and navigating our world, that, that is a, a very powerful part of the mind and memory to leverage. And the farther we divorce from that, the more you have to s simplify the interface. So it's like if I don't have a physical awareness of th where things are and I don't have a mental model of a physical world, like uh, what is it, the, uh, the way of remembering things is you, you lay them out in the mansion in your mind. You know what that, that trick is? That sounds like one of the things that you would know. I do not know that. It's like a memory thing. Like one of, one of the things like, oh, you know, the tricks to making, to memorizing things is like build a castle in your mind and place each thing you're supposed to remember in each room in the castle in your mind. And then you walk from room to room to recall them. Uh, maybe the chat room knows what that is. Uh, yeah, the memory palace, Clownfish says. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very common, similar techniques. So it's a very common technique to, to memorize things. And it's, it's tricking yourself into leveraging part of something that your mind is awesome at doing. So when you don't have that, when you're left with, okay, I have nothing, I have no physical metaphor and reality to grab onto, it's just this abstract kind of word. We are all great at that. Because if you're at a command line, that's the best example of that because your current working directory, that's like in your mind, even if it's in your prompt or even if you have one of those hideous two-line prompts, like 
the concept of where you are in the hierarchy, you're keeping that in your mind in like a little, a little buffer area in your mind uh, to try to give yourself some sort of sense of space. Most people aren't good at that. And like with iCloud and iOS, it's like our, the physical world is gone. All there is is the application. And, and within the application, there's just one place and one thing and maybe two levels deep and that's it. Like they, you really have to have it simplified because where is that application in the grand scheme of things? It's just floating in the void, right? It, it's moving from the file system as a, a big hierarchy that we can try to map out uh, into much simpler things that don't have any real physical analog. It's just like, okay, I go to the application, which I can find using Springboard, which is spatial. And, you know, I remember it's the lower left thing and it's yellow. And even though they're all the same size and same shape, there's enough, they don't move around on the home screens. Like they don't automatically resort themselves. When you wake up in the morning, you'd freak out if you picked up your phone and all the icons were randomly rearranged by application size, right? That's a spatial interface to get to the application. And once you're there, it's a very limited world. Uh, and the, I don't want to make this into a spatial final rant, rant, but part of the reason is that for, for many years now, Apple has been moving the interface to the file system farther and farther away from an interface that uh, tries to make it appear as a consistent spatial world and moving more towards uh, browsing and searching and stuff like that. But the thing is, the file system is just too darn big to browse and search. And so once you take away the, the physical cues or the, the fake physical cues, what you're left with is uh, parts of the skill set of the user base that are not as strong as others and then they, they flee from it. And so Apple's saying, okay, we're just going to forget about that hierarchy and simplify it massively. Uh, and, and that's kind of one way to go. But once you silo it into bins like that, again, you have the problem of uh, sharing data. Uh, so the desktop is is the one thing that's left because that's the one thing they didn't kill. They tri- The next people tried to. They wanted the desktop to be void where you can't put anything on it, right? They left it there. And so that's the one last bastion of even the novice people like they've written off the file system. All they use is Spotlight. All they use is their sidebar. Maybe they use all my files. Uh, OpenSafe dialog boxes still scare them. They don't understand it. They have no awareness of where things are. But the desktop is like that last place. And the thing about the desktop is people who put stuff on the desktop, you can get to it. You can drag it from the desktop into preview onto the preview dock icon. You can drag something from an application onto the desktop, drag an image out of a web page onto a desktop. These sound like advanced things, but I've seen very, very novice users do them because they think, Oh, I want that image. Can I grab it with the mouse? I guess I can. And then once they have it, they're like, I'll put it in that one place that I'm comfortable with, which is the floor of my computer. And they put it on their desktop. And they're like, huh, there it is. And they're delighted by that. All right. The desktop is the go-between place for all these different you know, potential silos. Uh, and iCloud would like to not have you do that as well. You can drag out of iCloud on your desktop and, and vice versa. But like, if they're trying to get rid of the file system, they're going to have a real difficult time, even with the novice users, getting rid of the desktop. I, I, I really hope they have some kind of, I don't want to say a come to Jesus moment, but some, some kind of consideration of like, even if they're very successful in, in eliminating the desktop, like you know, on iOS, there's no desktop there. There's still Springboard, right? There's always this other place where there's always a central integration place. And that central integration place on iOS is massively spatial, and on on the Mac, it's it's still kind of spatial. And I don't think they're going to be able to get rid of that. And I hope they think about why that is, because I think almost every interface on the Mac could be enhanced by better leveraging uh, those abilities, and rather than just fleeing from them and saying people are never going to figure out the hierarchy. Well, of course they're never going to figure out the hierarchy if they if there's no physical analog for them to latch onto and no way for them to remember based on like location in the real world sense. Boy, who would have thought the iCloud section would go off into a crazy spatial finder thing? You and you and your spatial finders. 
Yeah, I should. I try. I think I tried to do a show about that once, and it didn't work. I just keep coming back to it. Yeah, you just, it, yeah, you just have nightmares about Jurassic Park. Uh, yeah, that's. I, I use that this in real life. Exist- yeah, you told me that. That's. I know. That's. It's exciting. That's. It's like. It's like seeing a celebrity. It's <laughs> like, like I, I met Tom. <laughs> I met Tom Cruise, and I used that <laughs> Jurassic Park thing. Like I could see you standing up in the theater and say, "This is real. <laughs> it's real." You know? I don't think I knew. I don't think I knew that then, because I think the movie came out. I saw that in college <laughs> on the in the computer graphics lab with SGIs. I think when I saw it in the movie, I probably assumed it was fake. I'd have to go back and look at the. That's one of those weird uh, situations where something that seems like a completely implausible interface is actually a real one. Yeah, well, and the ones we we really want to use are, of course, not real. Yeah, like minor, <laughs> Minority Report. Yeah. I've heard, I heard uh, Tom Cruise had to take breaks. Didn't we talk about that once? Yeah. He had yeah. to take the breaks because his arms got tired from using that interface. He's a little man, though, so he gets tired easily. <laughs> In what way do no, you mean no, that? No offense, Dan. As, as another uh, vertically challenged person. Uh, height-wise, I see. Yes. Yeah, actually, one more thing before we leave the iCloud thing about the integration point. is so This gets back to the share buttons, which we talked about on the previous show. Uh, how if these things don't exist in like a physical place that people know about and if the only place you can see them is from within the application how do you do something as simple as emailing something as an attachment and that's where the share buttons like that's apple at least recognizing if we don't if people we don't expect people to deal with the file system at all and there is no integration point and we want them all to be in these iCloud silos how the hell do they email someone an attachment because if you go to mail and and say click add attachment and go to the open dialog box and go to iCloud you won't see your things unless you created them in mail you won't see the, the text edit document you created or the graphics document you created in fact, you, because you can't see them from the mail application. So you have to right. go to the other application, select the thing you want, hit those ubiquitous share button and now say, oh, I want to send this as an email attachment. And then it will do its magic to make that thing appear because it, it's all in the file system after all. Uh, and that that's weird. I think it will occur to more people to go to their mail application, compose a new email, click the little paperclip icon to say add attachment and use the open dialog box to try to find that thing. And if that thing is an iCloud document storage, they will not find it. Uh, I guess they could go switch it to on my Mac and go to all my files and dig it out that way. But that is, you know, again, it's awkward. I, I like share buttons. I think it's a good idea to be able to do it from that direction. But it's almost a necessity based on the the, the siloing. All right, so let's get let's get off of iCloud because well, those will be on it forever. Uh, next section is Gatekeeper. Did we did I skip forward and talk about this last show? I think you mentioned it, but I don't think we went into detail. Yeah, so Gatekeeper, uh, this is another case where I, I do a bunch of review in the, re- in the review and talk about the technologies that enable Gatekeeper to happen. I talk about code signing, which came out in, in Leopard, believe it or not, that no one really paid attention to. And in Leopard Review, I remember hedging a lot or trying to trying to assuage the, the black helicopter people that like code signing is not going to make Apple own all your data and they're in your life and they're watching you sleep and go to the bathroom, right? It's just, it's just a way of uh, cryptographically sealing an application and saying, I can prove this hasn't been modified, right? Uh, so that, that was introduced ages ago and no one put up a fuss about it. My, my fretting in the article, they're trying to reassure people, either people just skip that section, they're like, yeah, whatever, code signing, right? And the practical effect it had on people's lives is that when you upgraded an application, you didn't have to click through all the keychain dialog boxes again and say, yeah, allow this application to access this. Yeah, allow this application to do this password. Because when you updated the application, it would know that it was signed by the same person that originally made the application. So this one is equivalent to that one. You know, code signing provided that. I don't know if people noticed that or not, but I sure did. Of being able to, not having to click through keychain dialog boxes every time I did a minor update to an application. 
then there's sandboxing, which we think we did talk about a, a little bit last time, which again was introduced long, long ago in a limited form on the Mac. Like Apple started sandboxing its demons, like its uh, you know audio demon and font demon and other things. Like for example, like the audio demon in general, if it's just dealing with data or the Windows Server or something, they don't have to read things from disk or they just have to read a limited number of files. They're like kind of faceless demons that you talk through through uh, interprocess communication through pipes or mock ports or whatever. There's no reason they need, and often they're running as root because they they need special privileges in the kernel or whatever or you know kernel drivers themselves, but they don't need access to. The entire file system, for example, so that if you, if they're exploited, you could just you know erase the whole disk or install rootkits or viruses and stuff like that. Uh, and so Apple rolled out sandboxing in the beginning just for its own internal stuff of saying, look, if the, if these internal processes and servers don't need access to certain things, you know, don't give the font daemon access to the camera. Why the hell does it ever need to access the camera? If someone, <laughs> if, if the font daemon is accessing the camera, it's probably been hacked, right? So they fenced them all off. Uh, and then they expanded sandboxing to third-party Mac applications, saying everybody sandbox your applications, limit your application to the least uh, 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 it could possibly uh, needs to do. And this was this was introduced in Lime, and I talked about it extensively there. As a you know, it, it's whitelisting versus blacklisting. Like decide what your application needs to do. If your application really needs to do tons of stuff, uh, consider cutting your application up into individual pieces so that. Uh, you know, Safari is an example of this. The web rendering engine that needs to figure out how to draw the page does not need access to almost anything. So they cut that off and put it into a separate process that, that the browser proper communicates with. The browser proper makes the network request, pulls down the data, puts files into a cache directory or whatever, and then it feeds that to the web rendering engine, which is very isolated, and that's where the JavaScript runs in a separate process that can't touch the file system, that can't screw with your stuff, that doesn't have access to the, the camera or the speakers or the microphone or all sorts of other things. Uh, that's their suggestion of how, again, this is all in line. Uh, I think I talked about this extensively in line review. That's, that's a suggestion of how you should develop for the Mac. Make your application, each part of your application, have the, the smallest amount of, uh, of privileges it possibly can. Because So that when it does get exploited, it won't be an attractive exploit target. Because if you exploit the web rendering engine, there's nothing interesting you can do from there. Uh, and they provided frameworks, this XPC framework of like, how, well, how do I cut my application up into pieces and how do they communicate? Well, we'll provide you a framework for that. Uh, and then the, the reason this comes up in more recent days is that to get on the Mac App Store, Apple eventually, after a long, long time of trying to uh, apply the stricture, said, if you're going to be in the Mac App Store, you have to be sandboxed. And they kept pushing the deadline back and pushing the deadline back because people's applications just stopped functioning with sandboxing yeah. because you couldn't, you couldn't do the things you're expected to do. Like if you had an FTP program like, like Transmit or something, one pane of the FTP program is your local disk, and the other one is your server, right? And the local disk is basically a browser for the entire local disk. You're like, well, I need access to the whole disk, because the whole point is I'm like a disk browser, and they pick the file, and they hit the arrow, and it transmits over to the other side. And Apple didn't want you to do that. They said, no, you can only get stuff in your container. When you can have a temporary exception, that freaked people out, because they're like, what do you mean temporary? Does that mean like two months from now, I'm not going to be able to have this? Because like, it's not going to go away. My application needs to do this to function. It's not like you know, that, that phrasing scared people. And like, do you mean temporary, like, eventually you're going to find a way for me to do this within the sandbox? Or temporary as in, uh, this is a grace period for me to either change my application or abandon my application because it can't work in the sandboxing model. And much, much gnashing of teeth about this. And after many months of delays, Apple did bring the hammer down on the uh, requirement. And as of today, if you want to bring a new application to the Mac App Store, you must sandbox it. And Apple has added many more entitlements and many features to try to help more application Mac applications work, but there's still kind of an exodus of Mac apps that simply won't work in sandboxing. And those developers have said, all right, well, I guess I'm out of here. 
and they've been leaving the Mac App Store. And they're joining the people who were never in the Mac App Store for, I could bring up Super Duper, the excellent Mac backup program that was never in the Mac App Store and never could be because it needs administrator privileges. And that was always against the rules of the Mac App Store. And why does it need administrator privileges? It clones your disk. It obviously needs to read everything on the disk. You as an individual non-admin user can't read everything on the disk, but Super Duper sure needs to because that's the whole point of the program. So it was never on the Mac App Store. And then there are ones that were on the Mac App Store and have had to leave. And finally, there are the ones who are either working within the model of the Mac App Store or trying to change their application so it fits within that. Now, where Gatekeeper comes into all this is it's another one of those technologies, one of those policy-based technologies. Because again, uh, sandboxing uh, is an opt-in technology. It doesn't happen to your application. You have to opt into it. Uh, the, only, the only thing that makes it mandatory is you know, if you want to be in the Mac App Store, you must opt in. Code signing, also an opt-in program where you don't want to sign your application? Fine, don't. Like, it's not like in Mountain Line or in Line, all applications are signed, all applications are sandboxed, or all applications use iCloud, or all applications have autosave. Like Lion and Mountain Lion, I think a lot of the confusion from the casual consumer that I get when they talk to me about my review is that they think the operating system brings these things to applications, when in reality it's the other way around. The operating system makes them available, but applications must use them. It, it's not, you couldn't, it can't force them on application. The applications, these are APIs that applications must call. Uh, so Gatekeeper is kind of the equivalent version of uh, the Mac App Store rule for sandboxing. They're like, all right, well, so maybe you weren't signing your application before because you're like, what's the point? And I don't care that people have to click the keychain dialog box or whatever. Uh, but we're concerned that people are getting software on their computers without their knowledge and it's launching and running and screwing up their computers. So what we're going to do is provide a little uh, setting in preferences and the security preferences that says, uh, here's the phrasing. Allow applications downloaded from, and there's three radio buttons. Mac App Store, Mac App Store, and Identified Developers, and Anywhere. And what this means is uh, when you download an application, we, depending on the setting, we will decide whether we think it's okay to launch that. The Anywhere setting is how things used to be in line. You download an application, you double-click it, it runs. So what? That's the way it always works. Is it signed? Is it not signed? We don't care. You download it and executable, it runs, right? The default setting is the middle one, which says Mac App Store and identified developers. And that means if you download something from the Mac App Store, yep, it runs, no problem. You know, because we vetted that, it follows all our rules, it's sandboxed now, it's certainly signed. Like, you know, we, we, we give that one a thumbs up. Identified developers means it has to be signed, and it has to be signed by somebody who has registered with Apple. And you get, you know, their signing key mixed with yours, and so you can prove, you know, they have to know who you are, basically. So if your application goes on a rampage where it adds a virus, they can find you, right? I don't know if they can physically find you, but certainly like <laughs> legally speaking, they have, they, have, they have decided they have sufficient information to identify you. I always question if, what that sufficient information is because if you sign up for, for a developer account, they do make you enter a lot of stuff. But if I lie there, do they like background check it? If I put a false address or a false name? or Maybe they don't it, background it, check it until there's an issue. Yeah, like, you know, so that's why I, I, I don't... I try to avoid saying this gives them the ability to do something. I rather phrase it as they they feel comfortable, more comfortable knowing like they've decided this is sufficient for us to allow you to sign applications for them to run on our computers. Uh, in reality, whether that information is actually useful or could be faked or whether they could really find you, I think the idea behind it is they know who you are. At the very least, they know who you are better than if you anonymously put random software on, on the Internet, right? And again, this is cryptography and everything to do with this. And uh, as long as their their private keys don't leak and no one brute force hacks it for, or, or using a supercomputer or something, random hackers can't 
create an application that looks like it was signed with a with a registered uh, you know Apple developer ID and the, the little the little uh, graphic Apple uses on all of its websites for the developer ID program looks like a driver's license and that's the way to think of it it's like a driver's license for for Mac developers like you you know the same way the driver's license you've proven to the state uh, at least you don't have to do this with development but in driver's license you've proven to the state that you know how to drive you've passed a driver's test at least some point in your life uh, and you register with them. And so now this is a form of photo ID, so the state knows who you are. And could you have lied, put a different address, move without telling them, change your hair? Yeah, that's, those are all things you can do. Or make a fake ID. At the very least, in Apple's case, it's, it's much harder to make a fake ID than it is to make a fake license. But that's the way to think about this. And so the default setting is anything from the Mac App Store or anybody who has a developer's driver's license, according to Apple, their applications you can run. And the top setting, which is not checked by default, is Mac App Store, which means only things that you download from the Mac App Store will run. Uh, now, the, th- the thing about this that I-, I hope I expressed well, as I didn't get a lot of complaints about it, is that all of this only applies to downloads. The phrasing is allow applications downloaded from where? Only downloads. So what is not a download? A not a download is something that's already on your computer that you've used before. Not a download. Those don't have to be signed. Doesn't care where they come from. It's not a download. Something that you copied off of a disk or a USB stick, not a download. These rules do not apply to it. You did not download it from a web browser. They don't care where it came from, anything like that. Uh, it, it's a very, very, I wouldn't say weak, but very, very limited form of security. And what, what constitutes a download? It uses, again, another feature that was introduced years and years ago on the Mac, which is the Safari application. It chooses to add an extended attribute and go back and read my old reviews to learn all about extended attributes that marks the document when it downloads it, it's so Safari downloads a document and, and it puts it in a file on disk. And Safari itself adds an extended attribute that says, I downloaded this, I downloaded it at this time, I downloaded it from this website, and it puts a bunch of information there in an extended attribute. Uh, it's, called, it's like com.apple.security.quarantine or something like that. Uh, it's, it's the quarantine bit on the thing. The application chooses to put that into the file it downloaded. Gatekeeper is only activated when you try to launch an, ac- an executable that has that extended attribute. That's the, that's, that's basically, the, that mechanism is how it works. So it is, it is the least invasive, least big brothery type of uh, security you could possibly imagine. And the whole point is it's not trying to enslave you or uh, you know, bend you to their will and make you only use registered applications. It is 100% just trying to make people not accidentally do things. Um, and I think it's amazingly effective in that because in the default setting, for regular people who don't know about any of this stuff, this prevents a whole huge range of things that can go wrong. It's much harder to hack somebody on a mountain lion thing with a Trojan with the default settings because you've got to figure out how to get a valid developer ID. And you're like, well, what if they don't download it? What if I give it to them on a USB stick? Well, you know, physical access means game over for security, period, the end. Yeah. That's, not, that's not changing. Uh, maybe people don't realize that, but that's why Apple isn't up at night worrying about what if they get physical access? Game over, right? So non-downloads aren't an issue. And like, what if they download it using an application that doesn't add the quarantine bit? But, you know, what do you mean? Like, they're going to use, use SFTP? Like, <laughs> they're using Safari. They're using, like, maybe they download Chrome. I believe Chrome adds the quarantine bit as well. Like, that's, that's such a, an edge case uh, as far as they're concerned. They want to get the common case of protecting common people against it. Uh, and for people who know what they're doing, you can change checkbox to anywhere, which I recommend not doing. And the reason I recommend not doing it is because you benefit from those security things as well. And it is so incredibly easy to bypass them. You, if you right-click on the thing and select open, completely bypassed. It doesn't run any of the gatekeeper rules at all. 
And why does it do that? Like at first I thought it was a bug. That's an actual feature. And they, they put that in there because you're showing that you intentionally want to launch this thing. Apple's trying to protect like Trojans that download and automatically run or trick you into running them or something like that. Right clicking, you know, and I, I don't know this to be the case, but I imagine the implementation in the finder that does this when you right click an application and select open, I bet it does. You know, it deletes the extended attribute and then just triggers the normal launching mechanism. And I, I have a little alias for that myself as well, like unquarantine, unquarantine path to file. It just says X adder minus D com Apple security quarantine. It deletes that extended attribute and then it's, it's uh, you know, the rules don't apply to it. So please, everyone, leave that setting in its default place because it's so easy to bypass when you want to. Apple's not trying to stop you from running applications. It's trying to stop other people from tricking you into running applications without your knowledge or consent. Uh, so I think a gatekeeper and developer ID are a great idea. I think everyone should keep the setting on the default or, or even higher if you want. If you want to do a Mac App Store only. Uh, because again, it's so easy to bypass. It only applies to downloads and it does provide an extra level of like security and, and comfort. At least until it's hacked, you know. <laughs> but what can you do? <laughs> All right, let's do our second sponsor while you re regroup. All right. Uh, our second sponsor is Flixel. This is a really cool app. It's a, it's a free app. It's an iPhone app. And it lets you create what they call living photos. I'm sure you've seen these, John, uh, where it's like, a, it's like a still photo, except one part of the photo will be seamlessly and infinitely looping. Uh, I actually made just, just a minute ago, because it only takes two seconds to make these with the app. I made two of these, and they're of you. They're actually both of you. And I put them into the show notes. What do you mean of you? What I see of you when we do these shows, which is just blinking lights. But it's actually very cool. So I put them into the show notes. It is so easy to make these. And I'm sure you've seen these things. There's somebody famously doing them with like Kubrick Films and, and other things that are out there where you'll just see Jack Nicholson's eye just moving from left to right and the rest of the screen is frozen. It is so cool. And you want to make these things. Now you can do them. And they have a whole little sharing network almost like along the lines of Instagram where you can share your photo there. You can post it on Twitter. It's super easy to do. All you do, you hold your phone and you have to hold it steady. So you could maybe even lean it on something. But you capture two second scene and then you just use your finger to paint the area that you want to be looping. And it loops it. And it, if you weren't steady enough, there's a paint bucket tool that will animate the whole scene and make it perfect. But uh, this is so cool. You can see these on Flixel, F-L-I-X-E-L. Dot com, or you can just search for Flixel in the App Store. I, I'm like totally hooked on this thing now. Like someone will come over your, to your, your doorway of your office and they'll be sitting there talking and you just make a thing and you'll get like some weird gesture that they did where just their arm comes out and you'll see them standing there motionless and an the arm will shoot out. It's so much fun. You got to check this out. I'm having a ball with this stuff. So I put a couple of these in, uh, into the show notes. Check these guys out. Flixel.com. Really cool. Like don't you feel like Instapaper should be ashamed that they didn't think of this and implement you it? You mean Insta like, Instagram? Uh, yes, it's not. Instapaper. And yes, Marco should Insta be ashamed. He should be yes, ashamed. Yes, he should add this to Instapaper. <laughs> you should look at the document and the words. But like, no, this, Insta thing, this is a huge and, loss for Instagram, I think. I, these, I, this is great. This is so much more fun. Like, I'm on this thing. This can is you great. imagine, like, the hipsters love the stupid filters and everything, but can you imagine if they could have also animated their kale salad? Like, they, right now, <laughs> there is just a giant, uh, the sound of, of, a thousand farheads being smacked over at the uh, the Instagram offices right about now because this thing is really cool and I love it. Maybe they'll be bought for a billion dollars. I want in. Yeah. If the Flixel guys, if you're listening, I want in. <laughs> Call me tonight. I'm sitting by the phone. 
Uh, so I, I kept, I actually had the X adder command in my review. It's com Apple quarantine. I don't know why I kept inserting security. I must have been thinking of the sandboxing stuff, which is like com Apple security. But anyway, yeah, read my review for that. Uh, let's see. High DPI. I think we talked about this. Did we talk about it on a past show? Yeah, I feel like we have talked about high DPI. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, the really interesting part is that the, the compromise they finally came to when they finally shipped the computer with the retina display is that the applications think they're drawing into a 1x or 2x drawing context where 1 point equals 1 pixel or 1 point equals 2, but the screen itself doesn't follow those rules. They scale the whole screen to non-integer multiples, and that gives you, you know, the best of both worlds where applications don't have to worry about pixel, cl- pixel cracks or rounding errors or things that look weird. They just use 1x and 2x art, just like they do on iOS. It's a proven system. It's, it's hard to do. It's work, but it's a known quantity, and we know it works. And then the OS later takes that resulting image and scales it to fit on the physical pixels of the screen. So, yeah, people are, are, who have their uh, Retina MacBook Pro set to 1920 by 1200, they're running a non-native resolution on their screen. And we all think about you know, our parents with, with, a, uh, with a white ice book running it at 800 by 600, which is non-native resolution for that thing. You're like, oh, mom, please just change it. You can't. You, LCDs don't work like CRTs. You have to go on native resolution because it looks hideous. And they're like, no, but I need things bigger, you know. It's that uh, the the trick of the Retina MacBook Pro is when you make the pixel small enough, you can put it in a non-native res, and it does not look hideous. It's I was as shocked as as you will be when you see this. Like it doesn't doesn't look as good as native res, but it's really close, and your eyes have to be pretty darn good to notice. Hey, wait a second, that's not even native res. Uh, so you get the benefits of arbit not arbitrary scaling, but cl- non-integer scale factors without your applications ever having to deal with it. And I thought that was very clever and very interesting. And I got to put in, this is the one place in the review where if you look at this review in the ebook versions or in the web version on a machine with high DPI, you should get the high DPI. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking at this with my Retina MacBook Pro right now. And I was going, I was going to mention that if you didn't. And absolutely, this is the, the, one, <laughs> the one page of your review that actually looks great in every regard. Go. It looks just beautiful. Boom. Yeah, and again, the next show I will talk more about the production issues and all the meta points. Uh, so that's it for Retina. Scene Kit. Uh, scene Kit, I, I, I always think there's one part of the review where I'm bringing something to people that they would otherwise not have heard of. And in this case, it's Scene Kit, where I didn't see those words put anywhere on any rumor site or any like everyone had mountain lion it had seen in it they could have talked about it but they didn't and the only reason i know about it is because i went to wwdc and this is a new framework where the that uh, the, the summary is what core core animation did for 2d scene kit is trying to do for 3d very similar api hopefully very similar results because 2d animation before core animation was the realm of like graphics programmers even if you just wanted to do a crossfade or something uh you're like, oh, I don't know how to do a crossfade. Do you like capture the image of the previous and next and do some sort of matrix math on it? And do I have to use OpenGL to make it fast? And I don't know how to set up a GL context. And this is all confusing. It's a C API. Like, and so nobody did it, right? But Core Animation added an Objective-C framework that just lets you tweak attributes and say, I want the opacity of this to go from one to zero. I want it to happen over the course of this number of seconds or microseconds or whatever and go. And it would animated on another thread for you use OpenGL like it would do all the hard work for you and so everyone's like oh I mean I can animate anything anything that was a static transition before I can just say oh please animate that like they made the API so easy that everybody can animate everybody can scale something up from big and small fade it in fade it out swoop it in from the side have it bounce like suddenly 2D animation was accessible to people who are not graphics programmers but 3D animation was still like well even if you just want to have a 3D spinning cube you know 
there's a, I think there's a web page somewhere that explains the 10,000 ways to get a black screen with OpenGL. Anyone who's ever done any graphics program understands the point of that joke. Like when you start with OpenGL, which is a low-level graphics API, you spend the longest time trying to get anything to appear on the screen. You're like, I should just be able to, to make a cube and it rotates. Oh, that you are a long way from that when you're starting with, you know, start your first day with OpenGL. Well, and that's why nobody does that. So seeing Kit is saying, all right, we want people to do stuff with 3D, but we don't want them to have to learn all the low-level APIs, like if they're not making a game or whatever. So they made a convenient Objective-C API for you dealing with 3D scenes, where you create the scenes in a 3D program, which is still difficult to do and still is a high barrier to entry. And there's a reason Scene Kit may not go on to the great success the car animation has, because it's probably easier to find someone who can draw you a cool 2D graphic, harder to find someone who can make you a cool 3D model of something. But once you have that model, you can load it into your program with Scene Kit and then display, manipulate it, and modify it in really easy ways. Like you can just, once you have that 3D model, you can read a JPEG off disk and say, put that JPEG as the texture on this model. And that sounds like, well, of course, couldn't you do that with OpenGL? Just try it. Like, you'll spend an hour trying to get the, the, uh, <laughs> the RGB format of the data correct so that it can work with the, the, the graphics display and your, and your video card driver and stuff like that. This, oh my goodness. Do you hear this? Yeah, what, it sounds musical. I'm getting a FaceTime call on my iPod Touch from someone I've never heard of. <laughs> that happens. All right. That happens uh, a lot. Yeah. So Scene Kit is really trying to lower the bar to this. And to prove how low the bar is, well, I, you know, this, I wrote this section up about Scene Kit, which was the, the session I loved the most at WWC, talking about this new uh, framework. And I thought it was going to be great uh, because I thought there were places where you could use 3D in applications. And I said, you know what, to prove that this bar is really low. Like, I put code samples in. I'm like, look how easy this is. You read in a file, and you grab some piece of the file, and you apply a texture to it. And, like, maybe that doesn't look impressive if you don't know what you had to do to do that, like, with the actual low-level APIs. It, is, it requires a tremendous amount of knowledge that people who are writing, like, a to-do application simply don't have most of the time. Uh, and the animations, that look how this looks like core animation, right? Jesus, uh, still going, huh? You sure you don't know them? I am sure. All right. You take, you take a screenshot of it? So I can look at it later. Yes. <laughs> it's good. Uh, so so to, to prove that this thing was, uh, was actually accessible to regular people, I say, I should, write, I should write a program. You know, I should write something that actually uses SceneKit. Uh, and I didn't know if I'd be able to do it, because I'm like, oh, yeah, you talk a good game and say, oh, this is a really easy API or whatever. But I didn't want to spend, like, more than basically, like, 20 minutes on it, because I was at the end of writing this section. I wanted to go to bed, but, like, let me just fire up Xcode and see if I can write something to do something. And one of the images they had in the WWC presentation was, like, uh, at the very end, they're like, oh, and we also have a cool API for doing 3D text, and you can make something that looks like this. And they showed, like, WWC letters, you know, in cool 3D text. And I'm like, if I tried to make a 3D text... On my own, using OpenGL, that would take me more than 20 minutes before going to bed, I can tell you that, like just to get anything to happen. But they say there's some API for doing this. And they didn't show it in the WWDC session. They just showed the result of it. And they said, oh, and we have a cool text API, and like here's a couple of lines of text, and here's an, a result of that. But they didn't show like a full example of like here's how we got this text with this program. And I figured I'm going to try to do that same thing. So I fired up a, pro, you know, a thing, uh, imported the scene kit framework, wrote a couple lines of code, and in like, you know, not 30 seconds, but in like, you know, 10 minutes, I had 3D text on the screen. And that was impressive. And then I just spent, you know, longer than 20 minutes tweaking it to be exactly the way I wanted it, applying the textures, applying the lighting, changing the materials to be matte and adding specular highlights. And, like, 
you, adding reflections and rotating the camera, that was actually the hardest part because you do have to know, have some awareness of matrix math to apply the, uh, the matrix rotation to the camera. I bet that they, they could do with a few extra APIs there to have some sort of easier control of the camera for people who have no idea about how this stuff works. Like, you know, especially working in radians and not degrees and, and the matrices are column order versus row order. There's all sorts of stuff that does get into like real graphics knowledge and it's lurking under there. Uh, but for the most part, in the course of about an hour, which is what I spent on this, I was able to produce cool-looking 3D text, uh, which I think is pretty amazing. And again, it may, may not be that impressive to most people, but I invite anyone who is any kind of programmer who has not done graphics programming to try to do that same thing using OpenGL or DirectX or, or the API of your choice. Uh, and the demo they gave to show this, uh, to show all the stuff in the WDC session was they said, what if we make, like, uh, we have a scene that shows a bunch of picture frames leaning against each other. And we'd like to use it as kind of like an animated slideshow where the, the pictures of your family appear on the picture frames. And the picture frames had a piece of glass over them and the glass had reflections and the frames were wood and they were on a wooden table and there were spotlights and they rotated them. And this is totally something you can see them doing like an iPhoto, for right. example, to show off your pictures. Uh, and it's a case where like people may be asking, does, does 3D have any place in our interface? Like, do we want our windows flying at us and they're all big knobs and textures and, you know, like, no, we don't want that. But like, there are applications where you can totally see that a 3D model on a 3D scene would be cool and interesting. Uh, and a slideshow or some sort of thing where you present the product of your work in a cool way is great. I mean, I'm not sure it, you want to have a full application that's completely 3D, though I believe through the hints I've seen posted publicly to Twitter, so I don't feel about, bad about saying this, Delicious Monster, uh, Will Shipley is the other big fanboy I've seen, Kit. And I don't even know if he read my review and knows that we are kin fanboys of this framework. But he's actually, <laughs> he's apparently actually using it to do something. And I know Delicious Monster is working on a new application. Maybe their next application, like the interface, will be all 3D. Because they did, of course, Delicious Library, which uses a 2D image of a bookshelf as the place where you keep all your stuff and everything. And that was very interesting. Well, what if you had a 3D model of your bookshelf? Maybe it's just the next cooler version of Delicious Library as a way to display your stuff. But uh, I'm totally sold on the idea that it should be easier to do simple things in 3D. You know, not writing the next great game, although they do say scene kit could be used to make simple games, and I believe that. Uh, but, yeah, the reason it's not part of pretty much any application you can think of on the Mac, except maybe the chess app, which, like, predates this by many, many years, uh, is that it's just so hard to do. So I think this framework provides a... makes something possible that was totally not possible before Mountain Lion for most developers, just like Core Animation did. And the only question remains is, how useful is it going to be to have 3D in our applications and how much more difficult is it to get the original 3D assets to begin with, uh, you know, to find a designer to do it for you or whatever. That's, that's something I would love to talk to Apple's designers about because a lot of the Apple graphics that they do, uh, they use 3D rendering as part of the process of producing those graphics. Not that it's just an outright 3D render, like they're always touched up or maybe they just use it as a component of it and build up to a final image. But 3D rendering is used to create a lot of the 2D graphics we see from Apple's designers. But you don't hear, you hear your designers talking about like, oh, I like to use Photoshop or Illustrator or here are my tips and tricks for, for using my favorite graphics application. But someone out there has got to know how to use 3D applications and have to be really good with them. And I don't see, maybe their guys are all talking someplace else and maybe I just always only know 2D and web designers. But that is a skill set that it must exist out there in the, develop, in the uh, designer community, but it's just not talked about as much. And maybe this will bring it to more prominence because all of a sudden designers will uh, designers will have application developers coming to them and saying yeah i need you to do an icon for me and i need you to do help me with my ui design and also i need you to do some 3d modeling right 
I mean, maybe when you go to Icon Factory and ask them to do an icon, maybe they use 3D modeling for some of this stuff. I don't know. Icon Factory may be kind of more of a hand-drawn thing. But this, this could bring, bring 3D out from the shadows in the, uh, in the Mac developer community, at least. And, so, and the only other person I've seen excited about seeing Kit is Will Shipley. If there are other people who are excited about it, I don't know. I think, I think that session was programmed against other sessions that had broader appeal. Uh, but I tried to evangelize it as much as I could. And this, this article was part of that. Just shed a little light on it. Yeah. It deserves to be known. So let it be known. So uh, what, how, how are we doing on time here? What do we got left? Uh, we, we can do a little bit more. Let's do our last uh, sponsor, and uh, then we'll see what happens. Our last sponsor, certainly not least, love these guys, Hover.com, Simplified Domain Management. You know, all of us, we all like to register some domains. This is for some people like me, uh, and, and worse for Merlin, it becomes a problem uh, for, for regular human beings. They have an idea and they say, oh, I'd like to get a domain name. I want a .com, a .net. I really like the .tv, the .co. Well, they do all of these over at Hover and uh, they make it as easy as, but it's simple. It's a really simple, elegant, straightforward experience, straightforward interface. All you must do is go to Hover.com. Go to Hover.com slash Dan sent me and you'll get 10% off, by the way. But you go there and there's a little search box. And in the search box, you just type the domain that you're interested in. And that's it. That's all there is to it. They'll show you if it's available. If it's available, you hit the plus. Check out. It's yours. If it's not available, they'll show you what is available. They'll, they'll look at the terms that you entered. If you just enter in some search terms, and they'll come up with domains for you. It's an incredibly simple service. Really easy to use. They don't sign up for stuff you don't want. There's one checkbox, one thing you'll need to decide. Do you want your information to be private? Do you want who is privacy? So that way, when someone does a who is on the domain, do you want your information to show up? It's checked by default that you want that to be private. They don't charge you anything for that. It's built in. They don't charge you anything if you want help transferring your domain from another registrar. They'll do it for you for free. They have instructions if you want to do it yourself for all the main registrars out there. And they have their toll-free 800 number where they will never put you on hold. And they have human beings that answer all the time, 24-7. I mean, what more could you ask for? And they don't bug you. The only time they, they contact you at all is, oh, your domain name is, is up for uh, renewal. And if you don't respond, then it expires. No big deal. They're banking on the fact that you, like me, don't want to be bugged. You want to go and register a domain name and get out of there. But they have really cool things like DNS management. They do email hosting. They do a whole bunch of stuff. But they get out of the way. And that's what I like about them. So go to hover.com slash Dan sent me or just use the code Dan sent me and you will get 10% off. You can use it for as many domains as you want. You can use it over and over again. Take advantage of it. I use it myself. They don't mind. Hover.com. Check them out. All right. So it looks like we're probably not going to even finish this this week. This is going to be a three-parter. Yeah, it seems like it has to be or at least a two-and-a-half-parter. I guess it'll probably just expand into a three-parter. And people people uh, gave me some flack uh, from the show, uh, the previous show where I talked about this, is that it was so long Uh what the show said, the well, show itself was so long that yeah it was like oh weren't you trying to make shorter shows and we talked about it and everything but yeah. I give myself a total out for like this is the one well, this time is of the year big thing this is yeah. your big day this is your moment to shine well it's certainly the moment where I have a lot to talk about so I, I'm giving myself leeway to not worry about the shorter shows for this well good for you when I'm talking about this uh, so the next section is about Objective C enhancements and this is once again revisiting my uh, 
concerns about Apple's development platform, my sort of meta, meta, meta concerns of like <laughs> everyone, like forget everything else. Everyone is writing in a language based on C with pointers that allow them to uh, scribble all over memory whenever the hell they want. And uh, a lot of people ask me why I'm not a Mac developer. And, and part, big part of it is, especially coming you know from the web world as I do, that Mac development it just looks it just looks too verbose to me for what it's doing. There's just too much code to get. I mean, even though Apple's done so well, like the core animation scene could be examples of making you be able to write very little code. Like that that uh, program that I wrote to do the 3D text that's 46 lines of code. And even when I look at that 46, though, I still say a lot of this is boilerplate, uh, and it and it has to do with the language and the API both. Like. It's a low-level language with, with a high-level runtime on top of it. C is low-level, and Objective-C is high-level because they have a runtime. And a runtime is basically like a tiny program written in C that runs the rest of your program, right? Uh, and the API itself is tailored to that with in-out params. And I guess blocks has helped it to be a little bit higher level. But, you know, all the, all the typing you expect from, uh, from C, although, you know, Objective-C has the concept of ID where you can uh, ignore typing if you want. But, like, it's this weird hybrid. But the big thing about it is, like, memory safety. Memory management is less of a concern with the advent of Arc, which I talked about extensively in the line review. But memory safety is still out there. And even memory management, even though Arc, like, oh, it takes care of it for you, it's not quite the same thing as a completely memory-managed language where you, have, where you can't have a segmentation fault ever. That's your fault. Like, for example, JavaScript. If you have a segmentation fault in JavaScript, that's not your fault as the programmer. And that's, that's good for programmers. Programmers like that, or I like that. Uh, and much higher level concepts. Uh, blocks are an example, but they're, you know, they're not quite the same thing as closures in higher level languages. So I've been concerned about this for many, many years, since like 2005 when I first wrote about it. And the name of that series where I fretted about this was Avoiding Copeland 2010. And Copeland was Apple's failed attempt to transition from their crappy old operating system to a new one and i was saying like let's, let's avoid having another crisis like that in 2010 of course here we are in 2012 2010 has come and gone no such crisis i wrote extensively about why you know assessed my my predictions a lot of time i you know i i mentioned that i picked 2010 mostly because it was a nice round number but like i, I still feel like this is out there that uh apple is reaping many of the benefits of having a lower level language underneath their higher level language uh, but eventually the drawbacks will come to bite them and I'm trying to figure out what their plan is moving forward. And so the, when last we left this topic, I mean, this, this, the first five paragraphs of this section are just filled with links. So you could just read for hours just figuring out what the heck I'm talking about here. I was trying to, you know, summarize and get up to speed. But where last we left this topic, uh, I, I argued that uh, I was trying to give an example in one of my articles about like, look at what this looks like in Objective-C to do something simple, like have an array with some items in it and, and and pull out one of the items or do something like that. And I was trying to use it as an example of why uh, even if your language changes, like your, a your API should change too, because if you just change your language, you've seen this with, we talked about bridges, and yeah. the various bridges, bridge languages, where you, where you have, if you have like a verbose API that requires all these parameters, and you're like, you know what, if I just did this in a higher level language, I would totally not write a function like that. It doesn't make any sense. Like that's a built-in or it's, or it's dumb or like, you know, it, it should just, it just changed the paradigm for, you know, the Objective-C thing of saying uh, square bracket, my string, my string space, component separated by string, colon, comma, like you know, saying call, send the component separated by string message to the string with this argument that's the thing that's separated by versus like my string dot split and then comma, which is higher level languages have a different API. And like they're doing the same thing and it's not just syntax. It's like when you're working with a higher level language, you tend to create a different API. So the argument there was that even if they, they change languages or something, 
or transition to a language that, that has memory safety and has a lot of other things, the API should should change as well because the current API for pulling an object out of an NS array, like object.index colon i, and send that you know, send that message to the my array thing all in square brackets. Like, what about just my array square brackets and then a number between them? And it's like, oh no, that that would be a C array, and we don't have C arrays. We have NS arrays. Well, it's good. The NS arrays are good. It's better than using C arrays, which have many limitations that you don't want. But it's like, but the C arrays stole that syntax. They have the thing with the square brackets, and that that's why I was saying like changing your language doesn't help you because if you had Python or Ruby or Perl interface and you still have to call object at index, that makes you sad. Because you're like, Jesus, I'm using this high-level language and in this high-level language, the square brackets is how I get an item out of an array. Why the hell do I have to call object at index? It's crazy. All right, so what Apple's done, once again, uh, surprising me with, with their moves here, is it, it's, they didn't actually do this, but it's almost like my exact example. I now, I now have a counterexample. And they did it at the language level, not at the API level, which is really weird to me. So the old sort of array object at index colon value uh, in Mountain Lion, in the, in the versions of Objective-C that come with Mountain Lion and the compile tools and everything, now you can just do array square brackets and your index between it. You're like, but wait, wait, isn't that, doesn't that mean it's like a C array? Isn't it like a syntax error? Like, that's not a C array, it's an NS array. Well, in the, in the compiler, they know that that's an NS array, and when they see NS array with square brackets after it, they translate it internally to object.index. Uh, and so they're, they're kind of like changing their API by changing the compiler. Like you can say, are they changing the language? There is no language really. Objective-C, it's like, it's whatever's implemented in the compiler. It's defined by the compiler. So if you use like the Apple LLVM compiler 4.0, whatever the hell they call the name of their current, uh, their latest compiler, uh, they will do these transformations on your source code. Same thing for dictionaries, which are like hashes or associative arrays in other languages, where the, the key into it is not an integer, but an, an arbitrary key. So used to have to do dictionary value for key colon key. Now you can just do dictionary square brackets key. Right? And same thing with like object literals where you don't have to do NS array, uh, array with objects, ABC, and then don't forget the nil termination to tell it you're done with it because of the limitations of the way argument passing works. That's to know where the end is. And that means you can't have a nil in the middle of the array and all this crap like that. Now you can do at square bracket a, a comma B comma C close square bracket, like a literal for array. And the same thing for creating dictionaries the worst. It used to be NS dictionary, dictionary with objects and keys, and you had to do value comma key, value comma key, and then don't forget the nil at the end to terminate it, which every other high-level language is like, oh no, it's key comma value, key comma value, or key arrow value, or key colon value, depending on your thing. And if you wanted to make a new associative array dictionary hash, you could just say, you know, hash equals, and then you do like curly braces, key colon value. Well, now you can do that in Objective-C with the at thing before it. And again, the compiler sees the little at and the curly brace and knows that it's going to be an array literal and translates it to the correct message goal. So they didn't change the API. And they changed, I guess, the language or the compiler. Uh, so they, they continue to uh, do things that I find surprising. But the end result is, like in my little example, like who's going to want to type object that index? Well, now you don't have to. And they didn't change the API. They just changed their, their language. And by the way, it's still based on C. And you still have access to pointers. You still get all those advantages. So... Uh, those guys may be a little crazy over there, but they may be a little crazy like a fox. <laughs> I know. Uh, and uh, at WWC, I talked to some of the people, and my, my suggestion to them, which is not novel and I'm sure they were already thinking about, was like, all right, this is, this is great. Like, so my next complaint, or a next complaint of anybody who deals with high-level languages is, why the hell do I have to do NS array star equals, and now I can do that cool literal on the side? You know that literal is going to translate into like, a construction of an NS array. Why can't I just do array equals blah? Why do I have to tell there's an NS array? Because the thing on the right side 
has to has to be an NSRA on the left side because the thing on the right side is that little at square bracket constructor for literal construction of NSRAs, right? Why can't I do that? And that's called type inference, where you don't have to tell it what type something is because it can be inferred by what's on the other side of the equal sign or whatever. And type inference has been implemented in many different ways in many different languages. And it seems like a logical next step. Uh, C++ does it with the auto keyword, and I think C Sharp does it with the var keyword and stuff like that, where you where it's not like you're taking types out of the language or making it dynamically typed. You're just saying, compiler can figure it out. Like, based on what I've done here, compiler can figure out what the hell types these have to be. So I don't have to write this type name 80 times in this declaration. And it's trying to remove some of the noise associated with the language. So maybe next year, type inference comes to Objective-C. Uh, I still say that they're going to run out of ways to tweak this sucker. I mean, at the very least, the poor at sign as, is bearing the weight of all of their syntax changes. At synthesize, at property, they got rid of at synthesize, by the way. Uh, for people who know what that means, uh, you know, the at square bracket, at curly bracket. Uh, it's great that the at sign was available because the C language doesn't define, uh, you know, pre they already used it for like at uh, double quotes for their, you know, literal NS string creations that have been there in there forever. I think at a certain point it starts to become like, are you making it cleaner or uglier? Like blocks are kind of like that and arc where you got to do the weak ref things and, and the, symbols with underscores annotating declarations to convey information and the underscore block variables to indicate the variables shouldn't be shared in, in, in closures or should be shared or whatever. At a certain point, you reach like break even where everything you do to try to make the language cleaner and nicer brings with it equal detriments. They're not there yet. They continue to make the language better and more interesting and move it forward. And I think it's freaking out a lot of the old school Objective-C programmers, but at this point, I think they should be used to it. Uh, so... I guess that's just my update on the, the Copeland 2010 stuff. They continue to have an awesome, successful platform. Their tools continue to get better. They're, they're maybe not Xcode the GUI so much. I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, listen to other shows for information on that. But uh, <laughs> the, the language and compiler infrastructure, they continue to do very amazing, very interesting things. Uh, Arc last year and these new kinds of literals this year and uh, their static analyzer and their new compilers. And so thumbs up to that group. Even though they, they're, I still don't see eye to eye with where they're going. Maybe I just don't know where they're going. We'll see. Next section: power management. Uh, let's see what we can talk about on this. I mean, how much? How much do you want to keep for the next one? Oh, I got power management, missing pieces, uh, and then grab bag and grab bag. I'm not sure how much I'm going to have to stay with. I, I can save all this for the next show. Why don't we, well, here's what I'm thinking because I don't want to shortchange people. I don't want you to rush through it. We save that, and then you could also bundle into that your the challenges of... That's, that's going to be a whole other show. But yeah, we'll, 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 do, do, we'll do the best we can. Maybe bundle it, and maybe not. That may, that may be two shows. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe people will just be sick of Mountain Lion by then, and uh, especially with the vacation break in between. I don't know. Ah, I think people, I think the people who listen to this show, they like it. All right, so we, can be, we can be done for this week then. I think people have gotten more than enough mountain lion to tide them over till next week. All right. Well, if, if you would like to contact John Syracuse or just send us feedback about the show in general, we'd love to hear it. Go to 5x5.tv slash contact and you will just pick hypercritical from the list and John and I will both get your email. Thank you to everybody who sends them. I know John uh, reads all of them. I read all of them. We don't always get a chance to reply. In fact, I've, I don't think John ever replies, but he will sometimes talk about them on the show and it will prompt him to start thinking. Just think of it like this. You can, you can actually control John's brain by sending him an email if you think about it. That's how I think of it. 
Uh, you can also follow John on Twitter, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A on Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We appreciate you listening to the show. Thanks very much to our sponsors. And uh, by the way, consider rating the show in iTunes. If you haven't yet, it means a lot. It helps new listeners find out about the show. And, uh, and that's all we got. Have a good one, John. Thank you. You too. And welcome back. Good to have you back. Good to be back. Thank you.